what would you do if you discovered your dream job was a lie? Your whole life, you'd believed in public service, in helping people, in integrity and honesty, and you'd wanted a career upholding those values. But when you finally get that job, you find that it's actually all about corruption and exploitation. And if you speak out, one of the most powerful institutions in your city will come after you. Would you take on an abusive system in order to expose the truth? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Frank Serpico, the NYPD cop who exposed widespread entrenched corruption and graft in one of the United States' biggest police departments. In doing so, he broke a code of silence that his colleagues could never forgive. And he put a target on his own back. This is a story that upended New York City policing. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When 23-year-old Frank Serpico was sworn in as a New York City police officer on September 11, 1959, It was a dream come true. Ever since he was a little kid growing up in Brooklyn in the 1940s, Frank had wanted to be a police officer. The son of working-class Italian immigrants, Frank had grown up seeing cops as upstanding neighborhood heroes. They were a sharp contrast from the mafiosos who terrorized his community. His father, a cobbler who ran his own business, had raised Frank and his three older siblings to be kind and upstanding members of society. Hard work and honesty were important, but so was looking out for and helping others. To young Frank, the police were a living embodiment of these ideals. As a kid, Frank wore blue shirts, assigned himself cases to work as a detective, and joined the police athletic league in order to get a badge. 
Though he had to join a kid's street gang, it was par for the course in his neighborhood, he daydreamed of the day that he would finally get to be one of the heroes in blue. But that couldn't happen until he was at least 21. In the meantime, he enlisted in the military and spent two years in Korea. There, he learned to shoot a rifle and trained in martial arts. He also discovered a knack for languages and a keen interest in other cultures. Upon returning to New York, Frank took police science classes at Brooklyn College and worked at a private detective agency. The moment he turned 20, he signed up to take the police exam. He passed in the top 10% of all applicants. When he was finally sworn into the NYPD in September 1959, at age 23, Frank had never been more prepared to serve his city. And it couldn't have been a better time. Drugs, violence, gambling, prostitution, and organized crime were all on the rise. New York's finest saw themselves as the only line keeping the city from full-on chaos. In March 1960, Frank showed up at Brooklyn's 81st Precinct for his first official day as a full-fledged police officer. Covering a struggling neighborhood in central Brooklyn, the precinct regularly dealt with everything from theft to murder. It was exactly the kind of place Frank wanted to be, even as a beat cop, somewhere he could learn about how best to help the city. He quickly discovered, though, that most of what he had to learn was how to cut corners and take advantage of his new status as an officer. The more senior officers showed him tricks, such as where to sleep when he was supposed to be on the night beat, and which cafes cops could eat at for free. In exchange, the proprietors didn't get hassled for double parking and other minor infractions. All of this rubbed Frank the wrong way. He liked good food and insisted upon paying for it. He enjoyed walking the beat, even in the middle of the night, and once even caught a burglar in the act at 2.30 in the morning. He found it disconcerting how little his fellow officers respected the public. To Frank, this was a job about public service. To many of his colleagues, everyone who wasn't a cop was below them on the food chain. The incident that really concerned Frank, though, happened one day when he was driving with a veteran cop. The two were cruising around the precinct on their shift when a car ran a red light right in front of them. When Frank pulled the driver over, the driver begged Frank not to ticket him. He could lose his job. Then, suddenly, the driver offered him $35 to avoid the ticket. Frank was shocked that someone would try to bribe their way out of a traffic ticket. That was way worse than missing a red light. Frank asked his partner to witness the bribery charge, but the veteran cop told Frank to let him handle it. He returned a moment later carrying cash. He'd taken the bribe and wanted to share the money with Frank. Frank refused. The other cop was surprised, but Frank insisted that he didn't need or want the cash. The veteran was grateful, but Frank left the exchange disturbed. He could tell someone, 
but he wasn't sure anyone would take the word of a rookie against that of an experienced cop. But Frank soon learned that he didn't need to worry about telling anyone. As word got around the precinct that he wasn't interested in petty bribes, he became increasingly popular as a partner. It seemed that everyone knew about this kind of behavior. It was just that no one cared, because so many of them were doing it. The other thing he discovered was the code of silence. If he had any problems with the way things were going, they had to be handled internally. Going outside would hurt the NYPD. Cops always had to have each other's backs, even if they didn't agree with each other. So Frank tried to put his head down and focus on becoming as good a police officer as possible. He liked the job and found much of the work rewarding. On one of his shifts, he helped deliver a baby. On another, he stopped an attempted rape. But he soon realized that being on the beat wasn't enough to make a real difference in the world. Beat cops were often the butt of jokes and abuse from more senior officers. Many of his colleagues were jaded and disinterested. They saw the public as adversaries rather than their community. So Frank decided that he wanted to be a detective. That would give him the crime-solving autonomy that he craved. He took the first job available in the detective division that he heard about, in the Bureau of Criminal Identification, or BCI. Unfortunately, it turned out to be an office job and involved too much paper shuffling for Frank's liking. Still, he refused to be deterred. If the NYPD wouldn't develop him, he would develop himself. The BCI offices were in Lower Manhattan, so he started hanging out in Greenwich Village. Soon he was taking sociology classes at the City University of New York. He learned Spanish and discovered jazz and ballet. Within several months, Frank had rented an apartment in the village and started growing his hair out. Since he no longer had to wear a uniform, he began paying attention to fashion, wearing loose jeans and colorful shirts. The BCI didn't know what to do with him. The police didn't like counterculture types, whom they saw as drug addicts and troublemakers. Frank might be good at his job, but it was increasingly clear that he didn't belong. When his superiors quietly transferred him back to uniformed patrol, Frank feared that his chance to make detective was gone. But he got lucky. His new captain realized that Frank's unusual look would allow him to work undercover on cases where a clean-cut cop might stand out. He agreed that Frank would make a great detective and suggested he applied to be a plainclothes officer. This was now required in order to become a detective. Frank wasn't sold. He'd heard stories about plainclothes officers. They worked so-called vice cases, those involving crimes like illegal gambling, drug trafficking, and sex work. And there was talk that they took a cut of the criminal's profits. Frank had no interest in getting involved in any of that after his brush with graft and bribery several years earlier. Was there no other way he could become a detective? His captain reassured him. Maybe things used to be like that. But plainclothes work was clean now. He had no doubt Frank would flourish. 
So, in January 1966, at the age of 29, Frank started his training. From the start, he loved it. He learned everything from bookmakers' tricks and codes, to how to cultivate informants, to how to tap a phone. He was finally getting the investigator training that he'd always wanted. When he was assigned to his first plainclothes job at another Brooklyn precinct, he threw himself into it. This was the closest he'd gotten to being a detective, and he wasn't going to blow it. It quickly became clear that, once again, Frank didn't quite fit in. For one thing, he was supposed to work with a partner. But Frank used his appearance to help his investigations. Despite being out of uniform, the other plainclothes officers were still obviously cops. Frank knew that he'd be less effective working with them, so he opted to go it alone. This lack of willingness to collaborate didn't make Frank many friends. Nor did the fact that he seemed more interested in going to the theater and hanging out in the village than spending time with his colleagues. But the real problems came when he was assigned to review the precinct's public complaints. There, Frank found letters alleging that police officers were shaking down suspects for money and taking payoffs from illegal gambling operators. The complaint suggested that the cops protected criminal organizations in exchange for cash. This was the graft Frank had heard about. He had no doubt that there was some truth to the claims. He'd clearly just been insulated from the issue by working alone. It was Frank's job to look into the allegations. But when he did, his superior officer pulled him aside and suggested that he just let them slide. Cops didn't go after their own. It would just make the department look bad. He didn't want to do that, did he? As Frank tried to figure out what to do, another plainclothes officer approached him to feel him out about the situation. He wanted to know what Frank's motivation was for looking into the allegations. If Frank was looking for some extra cash himself, that could be arranged. But Frank made it clear that he just wanted to do his own thing. He wasn't interested in whatever scheme anyone else had going. Frank hoped that that would be it. But he started to get the sense that the other plainclothes cops were watching him. They would whisper when he walked by and seemed wary around him. He just had to get through his time in plainclothes and then he could be a detective. All he had to do was keep his head down. It would just be a few years. But then, one day in the summer of 1966, that became impossible. Along with a number of other Brooklyn plainclothes cops, Frank was on temporary riot duty, based out of the 13th Division offices. As he was on his way out one day, a fellow cop stopped him. Was he Serpico? Frank acknowledged he was. The officer handed him a white envelope with $300 cash in it. It was for Frank, he said, from someone called Jewish Max. Jewish Max ran a lot of the neighborhood's illegal gambling. Frank could feel the wad of cash through the envelope. What was going on? Maybe he was supposed to deliver it to someone else. He thought he'd made it clear he wasn't interested in a cut of the graft. But when he asked what he was supposed to do with it, 
The other cop said it was up to Frank. And then he walked off, leaving Frank with the envelope. The corruption Frank had been avoiding had finally caught up with him. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Standing in a Brooklyn police station with an envelope full of cash in his hand, 30-year-old Frank Serpico didn't know what to do. But he knew he couldn't stay there. As he drove home, the envelope in his pocket, he considered his options. It could be a test to see what he would do. Or maybe he was supposed to distribute it at his precinct. Perhaps the rest of the division just assumed that everyone was in on it. Even if he was supposed to give the money to his precinct, he couldn't do that in good conscience. It was one thing to look the other way from cops taking bribes and graft. Being an intermediary was something else. Finally, Frank called a friend he'd met in plainclothes school. Like Frank, David Dirk was different from much of the NYPD. He'd gone to Amherst and Columbia Law School and had been immediately promoted to the detective division after the plainclothes course. Now he was working in the mayor's office in the Department of Investigation. He was ambitious and well-connected and, like Frank, had no tolerance for police corruption. David immediately suggested they take the problem to his boss, Captain Philip Foran, a senior detective working in the Department of Investigation. He had no doubt that Captain Foran would be horrified to learn about this and would want to do something about it. When they sat down with the captain the next day, Captain Foran was shocked by Frank's story. He had thought this kind of behavior had ended. That said, the real problem was that Frank had taken the money at all. If he insisted upon following through with his complaint, word would get out around the department that he had turned on his fellow cops, that he was breaking the code. And if that happened, Captain Foran suggested that Frank would end up a target. If he wasn't careful, he'd find himself face down in the East River. Captain Foran advised that instead, Frank give the money to his sergeant and forget about the whole incident. That would be for the best. Stunned, Frank followed the captain's advice. He tried to forget about the whole thing. Maybe it had been a one-off thing. And yet, he couldn't just let it go. That autumn, working alone, he started making more arrests at illegal gambling operations. 
If the people running the operations were paying off the cops, he'd catch them out eventually. Instead, three months later, Frank was unexpectedly transferred to the 7th Division in the South Bronx. Before he accepted the job, Frank asked a senior officer he knew, Captain Cornelius Behan, if he'd heard any whispers about the new division. Frank was hoping it would be cleaner than his current one. Captain Behan reassured Frank that, based on what he'd heard, Frank had nothing to worry about. Late that December, Frank started his new job. On one of his first days, he ran into a plainclothes officer named Robert Stanard. The two had worked together back in Brooklyn, when Frank was still a uniformed cop. Robert invited Frank to come follow up on a complaint with him to get to know the area. The call took them to a bar near Yankee Stadium, where it was immediately obvious that a guy was running an illegal betting operation. Robert went straight for the gambler to arrest him. As they led the guy out, though, Robert laid into the bookie for continuing to operate out of the bar, despite having been warned about complaints. In response, the guy offered Robert and Frank $100 each to let him go. Frank watched as Robert and the bookie haggled over the price and the arrest charges, so much for the division being clean. Later, Robert tracked Frank down to hand over a $100 bill, his cut of the action. Frank politely refused the money. Robert suggested they go for a ride to chat about it. As they drove, Robert explained how the graft operation worked in the 7th Division. Frank could make a lot of money here, if he wanted. The guys had a whole system worked out. A few of them collected money due monthly from the illegal gambling operators. In exchange, the officers protected them. The money was then divided equally between all the plainclothes officers, an organized payoff system called the PAD. It usually worked out to about seven or $800 a month. That was more than half their monthly salary. There it was. The corruption Frank had spent the last six years avoiding, all laid out for him like it was just a normal part of being a police officer. When Robert asked if he was in, Frank dodged. He said he didn't care what anyone else did, but he'd rather not get in trouble. Satisfied with that, Robert invited him into a bar for a drink. But once they were inside, Robert led Frank to a back room. There, a well-dressed man who looked like a gangster sat at a private table. Robert introduced him to Frank as Nino Ribostello. Robert didn't have to say that Nino was one of the area's big-time gambling bosses. Nino said he was pleased to meet another one of the guys. Then he handed both Robert and Frank a few $10 bills. Frank watched Robert pocket the cash, but he couldn't take the money. Nino looked surprised. He told Frank to get himself a hat. Still, Frank wouldn't do it. Finally, Frank told Nino to just give the money to Robert instead. And then he walked out. To Frank's surprise, Robert didn't blackball him with the rest of the division. Instead, he accepted that as long as Frank stayed out of the way, things would be fine. But it wasn't fine for Frank. All he'd ever wanted was to be a police officer, 
to serve the city and protect its citizens. And now it seemed like the whole system was corrupt. He didn't want to break the code, but he couldn't just ignore what was going on. So he got back in touch with Captain Behan, the senior officer whom he had asked about the 7th Division before taking the job. This time, Frank told Captain Behan exactly what he'd just experienced. Clearly, the captain's contacts were unaware of the situation, intentionally or not. Institutionalized corruption like this required at least tacit approval from more senior officers. But Frank couldn't just look the other way. Captain Behan offered to get in touch with the number two in the NYPD, Commissioner John Walsh, who handled police misconduct. All Frank had to do was hang tight while they worked out a plan. That was, of course, easier said than done. Back in the Bronx, Frank was assigned to partner with a plainclothes officer named Gil Zumato. Gil was one of the officers in charge of collecting payoffs for the division. So Frank now found himself riding shotgun as Gil followed up on late payments, hassled bookies, and protected anyone who was part of the payoff operation. He was there when Gil and several other officers raided gambling operations that hadn't been paying and saw them work out a deal. He watched officers give weapons ammunition to so-called informants. He even saw the meetings where the plainclothes officers discussed the management of their operation. Gill didn't mind too much that Frank wasn't on the pad. He told Frank that he'd hold on to his share of the cash until Frank decided he wanted it. He figured that because Frank was riding along for all these activities, he wouldn't betray them. Frank, on the other hand, knew he was in a precarious position. It was only a matter of time before it became a problem that he knew all about the operation but wasn't taking money. He had to admit, though, that he was impressed with the setup. It was better than most gang operations. When the officers wanted to track down someone who'd stiffed them, they were exceptional investigators which made him all the more concerned about the moment they turned on him. After a few weeks, he finally heard back from Captain Behan. He told Frank that Commissioner Walsh had decided against moving Frank to an anti-corruption unit. However, he wanted Frank to stay in his job and collect information, and would be in touch later. That was hardly the support Frank needed. Without the backing of an official anti-corruption investigation, he was spying on his colleagues by himself. The warning of the previous summer hung over him. If his colleagues in the 7th found out that he was trying to get them in trouble, he might end up dead. Over the next couple months, Frank's situation at the division became increasingly stressful. And still, he heard nothing from the commissioner. Finally he confronted the captain. Instead of doubling down, though, Captain Behan backed out. He'd tried to help, he said, but he couldn't do anything more. It wasn't up to him to push the commissioner any further. Frank was on his own. The first person Frank called was his friend, David Dirk, the detective in the mayor's office. David at least understood the situation and would be sympathetic. 
But David had another idea. His boss might not have been helpful last time, but he knew a guy who was a close advisor to Mayor John V. Lindsay. David knew he cared about stopping police corruption. Frank wasn't so sure. This felt like going outside the NYPD. As frustrated as he was with the situation, he still wasn't sure he was ready to cross that line. David argued that his friend was in charge of managing police department issues for Mayor Lindsay. That was practically like keeping it in the department. Besides, it was the mayor, not the press. And anyway, it wasn't like anyone else was helping. Frank caved. When the two met with the advisor, he immediately agreed that this was something Mayor Lindsay would care about. A popular and charismatic politician, Mayor Lindsay joined civil rights and anti-war protests. Making the city more equitable was part of his brand. A few nights later, though, David called Frank. He was livid. He'd just heard from his friend, and the guy had backed down. Mayor Lindsay already had a complicated relationship with the police. With riots anticipated in the summer, the advisor had decided the mayor couldn't afford to alienate the police right now. A few weeks later, David insisted they try again, this time with the mayor's commissioner of investigation. Frank was skeptical, but went along anyway. Hearing the story, the commissioner asked what Frank wanted him to do about the situation. Frank suggested bugging the division office. That would get all the evidence necessary to build a case. The commissioner agreed. Finally, something was happening. Finally, the department was going to do something about the problem. A couple days later, though, it fell through. The commissioner claimed to believe that Frank was unreliable. After nearly a year of trying to get someone in the department to take him seriously about police corruption, Frank was once again on his own. He'd had enough. He was going to have to take extreme measures if he wanted to change things. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. 
By summer 1967, 31-year-old NYPD officer Frank Serpico had been witnessing the corruption of the plainclothes unit in the South Bronx for more than half a year. When his partner Gill was transferred out of the division, everyone else learned that Frank hadn't been taking payoff money. Immediately, he became a pariah and an object of suspicion. Frank gladly returned to working on his own. He worked his own cases and arrested people running illegal gambling operations. Some even turned out to be on the pad, which got Frank in trouble with his colleagues and almost always resulted in the suspects getting off. It became increasingly clear that Frank was not welcome there. Finally, in the autumn, he reached a breaking point. He called Captain Behan again and asked for the senior officer's help getting out of the division. He'd heard nothing from Commissioner Walsh, and the graft situation in the South Bronx was as bad as ever. He'd even taken the problem outside the police department. He couldn't handle it anymore. The moment Frank mentioned talking to so-called outside agencies, Captain Behan was horrified. That could hurt the NYPD. Suddenly, he sprang into action. Over the next few days, he arranged for Frank to meet with a number of senior officers, Though they were primarily interested in who Frank had spoken to outside the department, they agreed to take the problem up the chain, all the way to Commissioner Walsh himself. This time, Commissioner Walsh ordered them to officially investigate the behavior in the 7th Division. At first, Frank was thrilled, or he was, until he met with the most senior official involved, Supervising Assistant Chief Inspector Joseph McGovern. When Frank argued that the issue was the culture of the whole plainclothes division, McGovern disagreed. Instead, McGovern suggested that it was merely a few bad apples. Frank realized that the officers running the investigation were only worried about their positions in the police department and protecting the NYPD. They were never really going to do anything to tackle the root of the problem. Over the next year, as the investigation into the 7th Division continued, Frank's plainclothes colleagues realized that he had ratted them out. Everyone else was on the pad. He was the only one who wasn't towing the line. Frank found himself constantly looking over his shoulder. The whispers had turned to glares. Robert Stannard, who had once welcomed him to the division, warned Frank that this investigation could take him down, too. As talk of a grand jury started, Robert even suggested that someone might try to kill Frank in order to keep him quiet. Frank became increasingly paranoid. He bought himself two handguns and started carrying at least one at all times, as well as his official police pistol. That summer, the district attorney who was involved in the investigation asked Frank to testify before a grand jury. Frank hesitated. He wasn't interested in the kind of small-time investigation they were doing. The DA emphasized the importance of getting these plainclothes officers in order to tap into the bigger web of corruption. This was the first step. Besides this kind of corruption could help Frank finally become a detective. Frank didn't have a choice. He testified. 
None of the DA's questions went beyond the low-level cops. In January 1969, he was offered a transfer that was supposedly a step up. Plainclothes duty in Manhattan North. Not quite the same as being made detective. Since the 7th had made it clear he wasn't welcome, Frank took the transfer. It couldn't be worse. He was wrong. On his first day at his new police station, another plainclothes officer threatened him with a knife over betraying his fellow officers. Frank reacted with his martial arts instincts. Within seconds, he had the other cop on the floor, his arm twisted behind his back, Frank's gun to his head. The entire office stared. Now, at least, they knew who they were dealing with. He had to hope that would protect him. A couple months later, Manhattan North's plainclothes unit got a new commander, Inspector Paul DeLees. On their first day at the station together, Paul called Frank into his office. Paul had heard about Frank, and he admired what he'd done, trying to stop police corruption. He felt lucky to have Frank on his team. Frank didn't know how to respond. He wondered if Paul was messing with him. But he wasn't. Paul also had a reputation for being clean, which similarly isolated him from much of the rest of the NYPD. Since Frank didn't have a partner, the two of them teamed up. They worked illegal gambling cases across their area, doing the kind of investigative work Frank had always wanted to do. For the first time, Frank had a supervisor he respected and could learn from. For the first time in a long time, he remembered why he'd wanted to be a cop. But Frank and Paul also encountered whispers of a payoff operation. There was no way anyone was going to tell them about it, but it was still there, right under their noses. As Frank had feared, the investigation had solved absolutely nothing. So when the DA asked Frank, in late 1969, to testify at the trials of several of the cops from the 7th Division, he refused. He had seen nothing to suggest that it would affect the NYPD's widespread corruption. This lack of cooperation frustrated the senior-most officer involved in the investigation, McGovern. He reached out to Frank to ask what more the department could do for him. After all, they'd done an investigation like he'd wanted. McGovern himself had worked very hard to do that, while also protecting the NYPD from external criticism. Frank couldn't believe what he was hearing. After all this time, the NYPD's leaders were still most concerned with protecting their own. Something in Frank snapped. It had been nearly five years since he'd first talked to a superior about corruption issues. He'd tried to be a good soldier. He couldn't take it anymore. He called his friend David in the mayor's office. David had once mentioned that he knew someone at the New York Times. Frank wanted to talk to the journalist. It was time to go public. Early in 1970, Frank David and Paul DeLise told the New York Times journalist everything they knew. As an inspector, Paul gave their story the weight and credibility that Frank alone had always lacked. Over the next couple of months, 
the journalist sourced, fact-checked, and wrote his story. In mid-April, he contacted the mayor's office for comment. Suddenly, with the threat of a blockbuster front-page story about police corruption, everyone sprang into action. Publicly, Mayor Lindsay immediately announced that he would be establishing a five-man committee known as the Knapp Commission to investigate police corruption. Internally, the mayor and the NYPD leadership suddenly started asking hard questions of all the people Frank had turned to for help over the years. By the time the Times ran the front page story on April 25, 1970, New York City's levers of power were in an uproar. The headline read, Graft paid to police here said to run into millions. It turned the city upside down. There was no way the NYPD was going to make this go away quickly. Finally, Frank's persistence had paid off. Police corruption had become a major public issue. For Frank, however, the problem was far from solved. The trials of officers from the 7th were underway, and the DA still wanted to get Frank on the witness stand. That June, he testified in a case against his former colleague, Robert Stannard. Robert was one of several plainclothes officers convicted that year. After appearing in court, Frank couldn't exactly stay in the plainclothes division. That summer, he was finally transferred to the detective division to work with the narcotics team in the Brooklyn South area. However, he still wasn't promoted to detective. As disillusioned as he was, Frank still wanted to make detective, and he still hoped against hope that maybe full-fledged detectives weren't as corrupt as plainclothes officers. It didn't hurt that around the same time, the mayor appointed a new police commissioner, an outsider named Patrick V. Murphy. He was known for being anti-corruption, and Frank wanted to see if he could make a difference. From the beginning of his new job in Brooklyn, Frank was disappointed. The detectives he was assigned to work with clearly didn't trust him. The entire department knew he was the guy who'd ratted out his fellow officers. He'd barely been there a month or so when another narcotics detective approached him. He'd heard all about what Frank had done, and he understood, but that was small time. Here, if Frank was interested, he could make thousands a month off heroin arrests and drug payoffs. If he wasn't interested, well, he should just know how much it was worth it to the other officers to keep the racket going. And there it was. This division was just as corrupt as the rest. Frank wanted to walk away from it all. But if he did, that would be letting these guys win. He had to keep fighting them. Late on the afternoon of February 3rd, 1971, Frank and his three partners got a tip-off from an informant about a heroin dealer in the neighborhood of South Williamsburg. By the time they arrived to stake out the apartment building, it was already dark. They took turns watching, waiting for a signal from their informant. Finally, tired of waiting, Frank went inside to keep an eye on the dealer's door. When two men came to buy, he hid just out of sight on the floor above. 
After witnessing the transaction and letting the buyers leave, Frank raced down to get his partners. They could bust the dealer right now. Two of them ran back into the building with him, while one waited with the car. Frank knocked on the apartment door. He repeated what he'd heard the buyers say. His partners waited just out of sight, ready to back him up. The door opened slightly. Frank put his whole weight into the door, shoving it all the way open. He shouted that he was police. Suddenly, the door pushed back against him, trapping him in the frame. Frank yelled for his partners to back him up, to help push the door open. But nothing happened. He struggled, reaching for his gun. Before he could get it, he saw the barrel of a gun coming towards him from inside the apartment. A moment later, it shot him right in the face. Somehow, Frank survived. His partners got him to the hospital in time. Miraculously, the bullet missed his brain and major arteries. But his shooting sent a jolt through the NAP Commission and the NYPD's newly reinvigorated anti-corruption units. Everyone initially feared that Frank had been shot by another cop. While the drug dealer who had shot him was quickly caught and convicted, Frank soon discovered just how much his fellow officers wanted him dead. The officers assigned to guard his hospital room refused to speak to him. He received Get Well Soon cards that had handwritten messages about how the sender wished he'd died. And Frank couldn't shake the feeling that his partners had set him up to get shot in the drug bust. When he was finally made detective that May, while still on leave, Frank barely cared. Later that year, once he was out of the hospital, he testified publicly in front of the Knapp Commission about his concerns regarding police corruption. He finally had the chance to tell the city and the world about his desire to make the NYPD a place for decent, honest cops who wanted to help their communities. Officers like that were unable to do their jobs as long as the prevailing culture supported corruption. He'd been fighting for that right for years. Unfortunately, this fight for a better police department meant that Frank would never be able to be the officer he had once dreamed of being. As he thought about going back to the NYPD after his sick leave, Frank realized that he would never be welcomed back into the police. As far as they were concerned, he had betrayed his brothers. It would always be a fight. And he wasn't sure he wanted to be a pariah for another decade. To top it all off, around the same time, a wiretap on a mafioso picked up chatter about a possible hit that had been taken out on Frank. It was time for him to leave. In June 1972, he officially retired from the NYPD and left the city. He went to Europe for nearly a decade, living mostly in rural areas, before finally returning home to New York City. In the end, the Knapp Commission validated everything Frank had reported, finding corruption throughout the police department, it made a number of sweeping recommendations for how to clean up the NYPD. It proposed greater accountability and preventative measures to stop corruption and bribery before they could take hold. Many of these recommendations were enacted by the new commissioner, and many of the senior officers who had let Frank down were forced to retire. Still, 
The struggle to clean up the NYPD wasn't easy, and the old culture refused to die. More than 40 years later, in 2013, a friend of Frank's found a recent post on a police message board calling him an Italian snitch. Indeed, it took until 2022 for the NYPD to finally recognize Frank's service with an official certificate and Medal of Honor. It only took until age 85, after 50 years of retirement, for Frank to become the decorated police officer he once wanted to be. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Frank Serpico, amongst the many sources we used, we found Peter Mass's book, Serpico, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Helmwood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. 